Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Leonie Hannon, a reader in history at uh, Queen's University in Belfast, to talk about her new book, A Culture of Curiosity, Science in the 18th Century Home, out this year, that's 2023, with Manchester University Press. Hello, Leonie, how are you? Not bad, thanks, Yana, um, and thanks very much for having me today. This is really great. It is delightful. I'm really excited to talk to you. How are things? Are you teaching this fall? Yes, I'm in the midst. What are we now? I think we're in week five. Um, and so, yes, I'm hopping from lecture to seminar to, yeah, to the photocopier. You can quite <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I understood just how much time with a photocopier I was going to spend, right? Nobody told me that's what life as a professor was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get used to that. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> me and the photocopier. Um, <laughs> yep, uh, we were, we made a we're very close. Um, awesome. So uh, and you're back to normal, back in person. It's as if COVID never happened. Exactly. Exactly. We're yeah, it is. Um, although I think our students have first years now, and yeah, I mean, I guess they had a good portion of their school years really disrupted. So kind of interesting seeing seeing that through the system as well yeah yeah and I don't know I don't think anyone was left unaffected by that at all yeah um all right so let's get to the book okay so your first book women of letters gender writing in the life of the mind in early modern England also with Manchester right 2016 plums women's letters for intellectual exchange and I think I think I can see a pretty clear progression of how you how you went from this to a culture of curiosity. But I'd love you to comment on that for us. How did you come to write this book? Well, I guess I mean I've got a long term kind of fascination with the early modern home, and um, you know it's really I mean the home for all of us, right? It's a formative space. It provides material, emotional, social sustenance, um, and it's also a place that can be dismissed as kind of unexciting, kind of commonplace from a gender perspective as well. You know, it's really a a space of female drudgery, um, a cage even, a cage from which women still struggle perhaps to entirely release themselves. Um, So, and there's loads of truth in this. I completely um, accept that, of course, and, and experience it sometimes. But my sense has also been that the home in this period is, um, is more than just a kind of backdrop for the action of life and that delving into its characteristics, you know, can tell us a great deal about um, parts of life that are not typically associated with the domestic. So I didn't necessarily go into it thinking I want to know all about the home, but I feel like it can speak of so much. People spent a lot of time in this place and it's worth looking into and some of the dis missing of the home is in itself a kind of dismissing of a female space potentially um yeah and I, I mean we were talking about 
uh, COVID. But yeah, some bits of this book were um, patchily written in odd bits of time during COVID lockdown. So then obviously the salience of home as a place of work uh, seemed particularly kind of apparent. But yeah, my previous work was really, I really set out to look at women's letter writing as a space for kind of exchange of ideas and also um, intellectual development and intellectual friendship, I suppose. Um, And I did that really for the late 17th and early 18th centuries. But I mean, just through reading loads and loads of women's letters, the home emerged as a really rich and important context for female intellectual engagement. Um, At turns, the home did contain and and restrain women, readers, thinkers and writers. But to others, it really offered the key space of their intellectual work. It almost always was the key space. Um, And either way, it was the place, you know, in which women and also loads of men, of course, conducted their inquiries, whatever the subject matter. So I think, you know, I couldn't ignore the home in reading these letters. And, and, And that's where, yeah, exactly the seeds of this project came. Right. Um, so talk to me about these subjects. Who are the women you're studying? What do they do? Who are they talking to? Where? Or who, what do they do? Where are they from? So in my first book or in this book? In, in, this, in Culture of Curiosity. Yeah, I mean, I've got a mixture of men and women in this project. And they're a bit of a, they're a, an odd bunch, you might say. Um, I had to be quite um, resourceful in trying to find examples of um inquiry scientific inquiry as they took place at home it wasn't obvious unlike my first project where I just looked at loads and loads of one kind of source and letters so this I had to look all over the place um it was much easier to find information about larger homes and wealthier women of course um but I looked hard and managed to find some examples also of working men and working women you could describe at least as sort of lower middling sort, um, people engaged in um, various jobs, were postmistress or have apprentices, um, working in linen and print industries. So, but we do, but I also have, you know, the aristocracy. So I have got this big mixture going on. I tend to think um, that the mixture is revealing and that, you know, you learn something by putting these people next to each other. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that's unexpected. I think that's kind of interesting because I, what I would think, like, sure, someone who is able to um, fund an expedition or, you know, whose who's brother has come back from the new world with a bunch of insects or something. Yeah, I see that. But the amount of... Um, the working class, or not maybe not working class, but kind of middle class people who are just engaged in what we call science is fascinating, yeah. And that would unexpected. That's that's something you contribute, yes. I, I hope so. I mean, it's definitely my aim. My aim, really, with my work in general, um, has been to try and show that people you're not ex- people that it's been routinely said they couldn't have a kind of intellectual life a life of inquiry. They couldn't have it. They didn't have the education. Their education, if they had it, was inferior. They were too busy doing working in various ways, whether that was as a housewife or as a um, a worker in a place of work. You know, very easy to d- dismiss certain groups of people. So it's a shame they just couldn't do it. My experience is that 
they could and they did and it wasn't without challenge and it wasn't without barriers and obstructions they weren't always successful in what they wanted to do but they did participate and contribute and I think it's only right that our histories acknowledge that really um, as fully as possible given that of course we lose a lot of the evidence of this I would feel I tend to feel about the kinds of sources I have found that they must represent some kind of tip of an iceberg considering how um, much disregard there's been around stuff that happens at home stuff that women did stuff that working men did um so yeah yeah and there's there's a kind of a broader you know this fits into this broader discussion about the creation of knowledge and specialization um and it's an important key and i find it just fascinating to think about um and then i wonder you know what's lost to us of course i'm sure you do um speaking of you mentioned your sources what are you using um, I mean, I've got a great um, sort of, um, it's a great, uh, I mean, I shouldn't call it a hodgepodge, but there is a sort of hodgepodge of a sort of delightful hodgepodge going on here. Um, where I have found um, letters and diaries, I've used those. Obviously, you get a level of qualitative detail and a level of reflection that is harder to attain in other sources. But I've had to also look at a lot of kind of documentation relating to the household, things you find in household papers and archives. Um, so account books, recipe books, um, household inventories, um, and that kind of thing, household plans and so on. So um, it is it is a sort of mixture and I move between those during the different chapters. So it's organised, you know, relatively thematically. Um, there are case studies um, of people where I have more material on them and what they were doing and what they were, what they thought about it. Um, but I also have chapters that really um, are, are sort of based on this sort of large section of um, kind of household documentation. And there's a slight circularity in the sense that. I'm drawing on kind of household record keeping, but also trying to show that this very record keeping itself, all these practices that we now see the product of in kind of our archives we might visit, um, you know, that 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 record keeping is in essence a scientific practice or could be, or forms the basis of one. Um, and that this was absolutely, you know, essential to the running of, of, of homes in this period. So um so yeah so it is a, it is a great mixture <laughs> yeah um is there anything particularly that um problematic anything i mean there is no perfect source what were your what were your issues um i think i think and this could just be the kind of i mean the kind of analysis i tend to do i work qualitatively by and large i'm you know very used to working with life writing so I do find the weight and quantity of and and the sort of idiosyncrasy and diversity of domestic record keeping difficult I guess that's like personally I may as well be honest like um I haven't tried to quantify you know you by what I have done is walked into archive after archive and looked up as honestly as I can at um segments of um, domestic record keeping I could get my could get my eye in on the way manuscript recipe books tend to be compiled there are always outliers um, and same with kind of accounting and that kind of thing you can see some people who 
have a real talent for it and other people are doing a much more kind of haphazard um, level of uh, domestic accounting. But yeah, I mean, that side of it has been sort of built up um, over years of trying to um, find as much of that material as I could in a very kind of, what would you say, kind of an analogue way, walking into archives and looking at those materials firsthand. Someone else could probably have done something different with that kind of material, um, quantified more of it, taken a different approach. But yeah, I feel that I got a a feel for that to the extent that I could um, write the early chapters of the book, book, which really did rely on those, um, what would you say, less voluble types of um, source material. Yeah. Um, yeah, just craft wise, one of the things I thought about with this is how much time you must have just spent sifting through piles of paper. For, for better or worse, and I'll see what happens now. I mean, during the process of researching and writing this book, I became a parent. So I, I, my life might looks quite different from how it did in the beginning of this, when I was beginning to think about this. I mean, I did, I've always been quite... Um, keen on yeah sitting in archives looking at the paper when I was working on letters I found being able to engage with them materially super important for understanding um more about them um I've been less keen on working with you know printed sources printed correspondence and so on not not to rule it out but I'm less keen on that um and that is how I approach the kind of sources I was least familiar with um, in this project but yeah I mean as I say what, what the future holds in that regard is different because it's you know it's hugely time consuming I did this in bits over a very long period so mm. yeah and, and there's an immense amount of time spent on a document to realize it's not of use that takes yeah. just <laughs> as much time. exactly exactly um, but there's such a it's such a rich and interesting source base, and I think you know the hodgepodge may be a fair way to refer to it, but that leads to something very nice. You have all these different voices and different ways mm. of coming on it. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I assure you. So, um, with curiosity in the title, what why the term curiosity? Yeah, I mulled this over for a while. Um, I guess. I guess I was trying to, so the book moves through sort of three main sections. The first kind of laying out um, effectively, what would you say, the kind of context of home and trying to think about the materials, the spaces and the kind of knowledges of home, activities of home. So trying to give you a real sense of space. Then there's a sort of middle section that deals with different kinds of practices in a number of chapters. And then I finish up with trying to, trying to grapple with the question of what did it mean to these people and what does it mean to us who are interested in histories of home, histories of knowledge, histories of gender or, you know, any of these other kind of themes. Um, I've always been, I've always been interested in trying to characterise um, what, what is really behind these sort of non-traditional in inverted commas um intellectual actors what's going on there and to give it and to to give their energies and their exertions sort of dignity really um and I and again I think it's easy to dismiss elements of what these people are doing so when I was working mainly on women 
um, writing, you know, manuscript writing effectively, so not necessarily published writings. Um, there was a lot said about how, you know, one could re- reasonably have wrapped that up as a, this is self-education. This is a this is a way of trying to educate yourself as a person with a kind of inferior education. And my sense was that that is problematic. Why is one person self-educating and another person conducting inquiry? I, you know, why do we make it, why is it easier to label one person's exertions one thing and another person's another? And so this sort of language that we use around um, people's um, intellectual energy, shall we say, has always kind of concerned me. And what I've always seen um, in the people I've tried to look at, so sort of not famous names <laughs> of um, Enlightenment science or whoever, um, is that they're incredibly motivated. They sort of have to be. And I felt like curiosity sort of captured something of that. Um, obviously, it's a word that somewhat freighted, you know, curiosity, especially in that period, was sometimes wrapped up as kind of a problematic impulse, um, perhaps an uncritical impulse. But for, for me, it did. it has captured something about the real energy that people put into this. And um, that they weren't necessarily doing it mechanist doing that these things mechanistically for some particular practical gain or useful bit of knowledge, but that something a bit more than that, a genuine curiosity kind of um, motivated. And there's something quite, and I think there's a, there's a way of thinking about curiosity that is quite liberating and quite kind of um, expansive. And that sort of curiosity, I kind of try, I'm trying to imply with my title. Although I may live to regret it, who knows? <laughs> it's an—I mean, it's a—it's a lovely title. It's really compelling either way. So good as titles go, no matter. But I think it does. It seems that if the attempt is to make it clear that um, wherever the wherever questions are being wherever this research is being carried out, wherever questions are being asked, it's it's of equal value on some level, right? I mean, so. But um, you know, if you're trying to break down kind of the walls between science and knowledge that people have, important people have, and then you know, science and knowledge that ed- everyone can have, I think that's successful or not quite. Maybe not quite everyone, but you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and then what does that do for kind of what we count as science? Like, what does scientific inquiry look like? Well, this is the tricky one, isn't it? And I'm often asked, I'm often asked, well, is this really science? You know, and again, just just going back to what you were saying there and, and what I think I'm I'm trying to say in general with most of my work is I'm I guess I'm trying to I'm trying to refuse some of the terminology that we commonly apply to to construct exclusive categories. I have some people on the inside and some people on the outside and trying to muddy the waters a bit, I hope, productively. <laughs> um, so I tend not to look at the science. I mean, I come myself from a kind of social and cultural history kind of background. I'm not a historian of science, not really even a historian of knowledge in training, at least. Um, I've ventured into this realm, but I, I don't tend to try and measure the products of any of these activities like what results from it and whether I find it kind of compelling science or not 
I just look at activity and engagement, participation, contribution, that kind of thing, work. Um, and yeah, and I try and I've, I've tried to sort of um, refuse, refuse categories I think will um, exclude people that I'm interested in including. Um, and I hope this process of trying to expand um, the population of inquirers, if we could say, in the 18th century um, is helpful in beginning in seeing more connections between science and other parts of life, which has certainly been um, a real priority of many historians of science for several decades now, at least, um, and and also for encountering, um, yeah, different kinds of scientists, ones who are not kind of uh, fellows of various important societies or, you know, leisured white men or people on uh, various voyages and expeditions in this period that, that we know an awful lot about. Um, yeah, so, I, yeah, I guess some of this process is a kind of refusal of those tighter ca- categorizations of science that we might, um, that we see, you know, lots of people strain against, but also that seem to reoccur uh quite typically in in scholarship yeah i wonder how much of that is just kind of reflecting back our modern obsession with tidy boxes and you know and what have you and and as scholars like we need to divide stuff up right otherwise it's really overwhelming Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) i understand that yeah yeah, and I mean, I think we also like the idea that we've gone to school forever. It must mean something. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So one, another, um, kind of before we get into uh, the kind of the meat of the book, I, um, so you've got these people who are doing kind of like we can call them experiments or collecting or, you know, doing their research at home, this inquiry at home. Um, but then they're talking to each other as well. Yeah, you have these networks of exchange. What's who's talking to whom, and what are they saying? Wow, there's just lots of chatting going on in the 18th century, isn't there? Um, yeah, I mean, we've got. I mean, there's lots of um, really important work on letter writing that has has shown. You know, I can think of you know scholars like Susan Wyman, The Pen and the People. You know. Um, no over a decade old that book but it you know it really stands the test of time in terms of showing you know really um working working people were were writing letters and participating so letter writing you know that that kind of barrier of literacy that has been often invoked to sort of disqualify large sections of the population from certain kinds of activity is not it's that it's not as solid a line as all of that uh, as as perhaps it might have seemed at some point. So, so lots of people are talking to each other. Lots of people are writing things. I mean, even in some of the, the archives relating to, um, you know, le- more learned type societies, you have working people writing into those. Sometimes they've had to find someone else to put the letter together. And sometimes the letter is a bit broken. The literacy is not a full literacy, but it hasn't stopped. It hasn't halted that urge to communicate in writing so a lot more people are communicating um in my book you do get especially when you can see the sort of natural history um kind of networks that seems particularly prone to having a kind of diverse set of people in direct communication with each other you have got 
you know, people from very humble backgrounds, you know, writing to members of the aristocracy and you've got everyone in between. Um, you notice in some of those letters the sort of um, way that the, diff- the very starkly different social standing is being negotiated by those people, but it is being negotiated um, and it hasn't precluded that um, sharing of information, sharing of specimens, um, sharing of ideas. So that in pockets, you get those sorts of links. But in general, people find intellectual community. I'm not saying there aren't lone wolves of domestic science. Um, There may well have been those kinds of people working away solo, maybe with a few books or, or access to the periodical press or something. But of course, the more communicative ones crop up more likely in my sort of sources. But in general, I think and most people engaged with research would probably agree, you know, intellectual community helps and it it builds. Um, it not only helps in terms of testing out ideas, but also feeling that you're part of a common endeavour. Many of the people working away at home from, you know, a position of fairly low social standing potentially, you know, really needed probably sought affirmation. Um, some of them sought it direct from societies and the kind of elite men who ran those societies. They asked for that affirmation. They asked for recognition directly. Other people sought that community closer to hand or in people among people um, of a more similar kind of um, milieu. So um, there's a lot. I mean, there's lots of evidence of that. So. Yeah, so I think, you know, also people communicate in a sense through the periodical press. I mean, people write in, there are letters written in. Obviously, sometimes editors wrote those letters themselves and constructed more of a sense of a kind of community. But there was definite um, exchange and, um, you know, those kinds of uh, regular publications certainly did create for for um, exchange with pe- between people who knew each other and people who didn't know each other. Um and so they're also interesting spaces um, for connection um, as well. So, yeah, so it was a very chatty time, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> very chatty. This also goes to um, kind of uh, goes to demonstrate the the intricate web and how much how many people are contributing. And again, like really this wider network of people making contributions to knowledge around, I think, um, yeah, um, like early peer review of some sort. Exactly. And it's hard to trace all of those connections. Now, there's one character who, whose work I, you know, takes up a lot of space in this book. She writes to a society, I mainly draw on that, that material. But then at some point I discovered she published a whole book of poetry. Um, and then I just thought, whenever you see, you know, these little entries in periodicals about certain topics of it, you know, scientific interest, they often just have, you know, JB from Stockport or whatever. You know, it's often quite anonymously written, um, or even a name. I just thought, you know, I bet, I bet she's I bet she did that as well, you know, probably in there. AW from Gravesend, you know, sure she's been contributing. She's all, you know. Because that the writing and the verve of it, you know, shows this urge to reach out. Um, interestingly, so yeah, people are definitely operating across um, these different sort of um, spheres quite happily. 
Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and I love the idea of like, oh, I do this a little science. I also write poems, I, you know. <laughs> I know, amazing. And hold down a, whole t- a full-time job. Yeah. <laughs> Puts me to shame. It's astounding and impressive. So um, the main kind of part two of this book, the central part, you go through three different uh ideas that I'd like to explore, um, collecting, observing, and experimenting, kind of make up the, the center of the book. And I'd like to just hear about that. What what do you do in collecting? Okay, so yeah, I, I divided these up, um, collecting, observing, and experimenting. I basically, the idea here was these were, these are practices that I believe are very domestically situated. They're things that other elements of domestic life certainly encourage um but there are also things that one if you put in collecting in the 18th century or experimenting observing you know you're going to get a lot of um work that focuses on quite you know high-end kind of intellectual pursuits right so they're at once something that is done routinely at home and at, at the other on the other hand also something that seems elevated seems like proper proper science maybe proper um intellectual work so that's um that was the reason for choosing them so I guess I could tell you a bit about the collecting one um it include, I guess it includes that chapter includes examples of natural history but it also um you know that I was just talking about um but it also looks at examples of people who are collecting scientific instruments arts manus- manuscripts and antiquities that kind of thing um, you know, slightly building on a theme that I try and set up in the earlier part of the book about domestic accumulation, like the way people, you know, homes are places in which you gather stuff in one way or another. So not to be too kind of elevated about this notion of collecting it is on one level, just accumulating, hoarding even one could, you know, there are different ways of thinking about that. Some seem quite kind of um, high end and others less so. So and of course, it's a period in which, which is sort of known for a kind of, um, what would you say, a boom in terms of the number of kind of domestic goods people have. There's been a lot of work on that in terms of kind of material proliferation, I suppose you could you could call it. So the first examples I look at look at basically naturalists, naturalists and collectors of quite divergent means and quite divergent social standing, being in contact with each other, trying to tease out a few things there. And the way those social relationships seem actually quite important because there are people trading in these sorts of um, specimens in this period, you know, kind of commercially. But it seems from some of the some of the material I looked at that, you know, actually the social connection, even when it is overcoming a kind of um, difference in social standing, um, feels important to these people um, and a kind of preferred mode of operating and you know obviously there's lots of other scholarship by other people who that goes into this in, in considerable detail um, and Saccord's work is a really great example of, uh, of this kind of thing um, and then I kind of move into a case study around um, the collecting of astronomical instruments and this is really so I go from kind of relatively humble um, male kind of naturalist through to this kind of you know lady Margaret Clive who's this you know incredibly posh women <laughs> I was sat in an incredibly grand house um you know um the wealth of you know British empire 
at her disposal and also loads of important family connections because of um you know she's uh formerly masculine so she's connected um to the highest kind of um authorities in terms of astronomy and so on so um anyway she but her because she talks so so interestingly about her collection about her interest in astronomy and she's quite a humorous person and she mainly talks the the main sources through for me was through letters to her niece you know you get it just opens up some of the kind of motivations some of the kind of gendered elements of this some of the way um the connections that she makes some of her sense um about who astronomy should be for come through really nicely and then because she's very concerned with how her globes in particular look in her home you get these interesting um kind of what could be conceived of disjunctures but they're actually entirely not they these things work together for her i think you know where she might be discussing something quite technical about um you know a recent astronomical kind of discovery or or sighting and then she she'll be discussing about how a globe sits in a particular arrangement of kind of furniture in a room and I, you know, we could divide those things up, but they were definitely not divided up for her. And I think that's quite important. I'm I'm conscious that, you know, her rooms were very big and her house was very large. And this, you know, does, and she had a huge amount of resource to throw at this. But I still think it speaks to something about except precisely how scientific inquiry fitted in at home and was just a part of um, a wider domestic experience that might in her case include kind of aesthetics um the way she entertained people kind of social connection and other things and so it makes that link that case study makes that link very clearly and then the final example i use in that um in that chapter is of an mp and antiquarian collector james harris um and he i just i mean he had some just lovely little notebooks really they weren't anything very grand but they documented how he'd stored all his artifacts prints and manuscripts and he had a very again he was quite a wealthy person he'd acquired a a lot of material um he'd often locked things away in different places um and it was sort of it was really interesting to see um the way he recorded this stuff and the way he ordered it and the way different meanings of different objects including provenances could then be related to the way they were sort of um the way they were ordered and organized and secured within his domestic space and he did that you know it was an odd little source really one that could you could easily sort of flip through and not see the value in and yet I felt it unlocked something about exactly how these sorts of endeavors collecting as an endeavor against sap within a kind of domestic space and i mean at the other end of the kind of spectrum you know in socially um by looking at a few kind of court cases around burglary and theft you could see that actually people you know lots of people had collections and in inverted commas which we may not give that title i don't know but they could be an assemblage you know assemblage of items um, curiosity or natural history items that sat along um, you know mantelpiece or um, on a shelf in a glass cabinet um, something very modest something maybe 
you know, only 10 things put together, but they were still, they could still be described as collections and they spoke of a need to put these things together um, and to, um, and to have them as part of your um, domestic space in a way to kind of enliven, um, provoke discussion, provoke thought. And when these things obviously got stolen, they crop up, <laughs> they crop up in, um, in the records. But yeah, I think that really, so the more developed case studies here tend to come from, you know, people, who, you know, relatively elite people who, um, whose papers have been kept. Um, but you can see these hints of this practice as it um, actually took place in lots and lots of different kinds of home by lots and lots of different kinds of people. Uh, um, And I I, I keep thinking about like similar collections, right? How many people do you know who have collections of things, Um, including, I think maybe it's fallen out of fashion a little bit, but right, like... I wonder if the urge to declutter has kind of put an end to some of um, some of our. Um, I, yeah, I mean, we. I suppose we live in a very mass kind of manufacturing era, don't we? Um, and as such, have kind of gone beyond the kind of aesthetic of a very crowded. You know, you can imagine that late nineteenth century aesthetic of an incredibly busy interior. I think even though we probably all live in fairly busy interiors, um, we uh, there seems to be a sort of cultural urge to keep that in check, maybe, <laughs> these days. Yeah, and then when pathologize it as hoarding as opposed yes. to just collecting, it's a slightly different thing. Anyway, um, exactly. while we're on, um, yeah, let's go back to astronomy and talk about astronomy within the, um, you know, observation, the possibly, you know, like the most observation based of the sciences, maybe I don't know. Just think yeah, that. I mean that's I mean basically the chapter on observing really hinges on on a kind of astronomy case study, um, uh, and I you know it's it's been an important one I think in terms of the development of this book as well. So, um, but I suppose I wanted to look at you know obs- observing. Observation was, of course, a key scientific practice, but one that, as other scholars have uh, have shown, was, has been sort of overshadowed by interests in general in the history of the experiment. Not un- not unacknowledged, but like somewhat overshadowed. So it's a slightly like poor relation to experimentation, shall we say? Um, I suppose one of the things I thought as I tried to get a handle on what the 18th century home looked like and how it operated was that close observation is also course central to the refining of techniques of domestic provisioning um you know and so this is in a sense a very familiar practice for very many people um and whilst it has been argued that scientific attention has very special qualities and that that may that that's no doubt true um you know special qualities that kind of strain the human body through repeated or precise movements one could also make the argument that some domestic practices in this period, as they were highly technical, highly tacit in terms of their knowledge, um, you know, high, required high levels of precision, you know, they perhaps they also, um, in a sense, um, required specific forms of attention and um, the condition of the body in different ways. If you think about fermentation or brewing or something like this maybe anyway so this is what sort of drew me in on observation but but I suppose yes this core kind of case study um concerns two Dublin apprentices who um 
pursued a kind of mutual fascination with astronomy. Um, one acts more as a tutor to the other one. What the, the tutor is an apprentice to his father, who's a printer in in, um, in the Liberties, um, which is an area of kind of central city centre in Dublin. Um, and he was tutoring a young man who who was um, apprenticed to a linen draper. Um, so um, they're both Quakers, which is part of the reason I, they're in touch with one another, I think. Um, so they do lots of calculating the positions of celestial bodies. Um, they um, draw extensively on the periodical press that reported lots of um, astronomical calculations, um, uh, sightings of different uh, phenomena, um, and so on. Um, you know, you'd get interesting sort of selections of um, snapshots of things that have been observed across the globe. And some would come, you know, from the kind of astronomer to a, an empress and others would be, you know, Joe Bloggs from um, Newcastle. So it was kind of, the periodical press represents a kind of interesting kind of set of um, pieces of information. These people, these two apprentices, were very skillful and knowledgeable as well. And they were able to critique things they read in these pages, um, interestingly. And also you get through their letters, you realise they're not alone. Like there's a huge community that they see quite regularly, even though they're working full tilt as apprentices. You know, urban working people who they're in touch with, they sometimes name, they certainly meet in various locations, including St. Stephen's Green, which is right in the middle of um, Dublin. You know, they swap, um, you know, quite basic um, equipment, apparatus with each other where they, where someone has something, they lend it. Um, and so, yeah, these are tradespeople and people in some professions as well. Um and they're people, you know, who occupy the sort of marginal spaces of the home. Um, then they're often occupying, you know, garrets, attic spaces and peering out of windows up high um, to try and get a glimpse of um, the things that they're interested in. So I guess through this kind of, obs- in this case study of observation and stargazing, um, I, what I wanted to kind of illuminate was the depth of engagement with science that was really possible in the context of both crowded living conditions, you know, heavy workload and actually really limited access to instruments. You know, in some ways, the 18th centuries, um, 17th and 18th centuries are a story of kind of the development of new and better instruments. Um, But these people were often dealing with um, quite rubbish instruments (laughs) or very few instruments altogether. So, um, and yet you know they're so engaged and they have so much knowledge it's really it's it's really staggering so despite all of these constraints their letters reveal this kind of abundant motivation agency and I guess also expertise I would call it expertise and they're they're pretty unrecognized figures in in terms of 18th century astronomy um more generally um uh, yeah this uh that that this uh the thing you do where you're you're bringing in just really questioning what we know and bringing in these like really uncelebrated people that I've almost lost is really charming. There's something about these two kind of looking through their windows that just, I find really lovely. I, I mean, it's like there's something to be said for the human spirit there or something. I don't know. Um, really? No, they are charming. I mean, <laughs> it's a lovely thing about um, when you find a really great example that will become a kind of case study like this. I mean, you do feel you get to know them a little bit, 
the letters are really fabulous and yeah really interesting <laughs> um all right so the um and then in, in with experimentation you talk a lot about silkworms yeah might seem a bit of an odd turn <laughs> it does seem um, like it makes, it makes sense I've read it it makes sense but um, I'm like huh silkworms didn't didn't see that coming so no no well this is this is the hodgepodge in action um yeah I mean at a fairly early stage of this of me as I say this I've been you know popping in and out of archives for a very long time to try and gather gather things gather material on this at a relatively early stage I found some of the initial material on silkworm breeding and it gave me faith in this project even though it's such it feels like a very like a slightly eccentric um inclusion perhaps but yeah I mean sorry let me try and explain a little bit <laughs> why I think this is important um among among letters in the archives of the what is now the Royal Society of the Arts in London, but was the Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce in the 18th century, a society that was really um, interested in so-called useful knowledge. So it distinguished itself from other kinds of learned societies like Royal Society um, in this regard. There was a in I, I work a bit across British sources and Irish sources and to a lesser extent North American ones. And um, there was a similar society that actually started earlier called the Dublin Society and then later the Royal Dublin Society. So very similarly focused. Um, but these, yeah, these letters in, and it was really, it's under the section of manufacturers because the whole idea of breeding silkworms is really about import substitution. The notion being that we, um, you know, at this time, um, people across these islands, Britain and Ireland, um, you know, consumed a lot of silk, really blooming expensive, all of the raw materials coming from elsewhere. And perhaps wouldn't it be a good idea if we could just get it all kind of reared domestically? And, and bearing in mind, we did have very, you know, areas like Spitalfields in London or the Liberties, in fact, in Dublin, where there were many people who were very skilled um, silk weavers. So we had all of that going on, but we were short of this raw material, this very expensive raw material. So it's a, you know, quite a lot of the society's interests revolve around import substitution. And there was a notion, because I think of some of the practices of silkworm breeding in other parts of the world, that perhaps women could kind of just do it for free at home and it would sort of fit in domestically. Um, and that would be obviously great. Um, and a bit like other concerns, which were more, um, there's lots of different kind of segments to the RSA archives. They have a bit on colonies and trade. Um, they touch on some of those kinds of um, discussions about um, botanical collecting in this period and the way you, whether you could cultivate certain kinds of crop um, in different places, you know, according to climate and so on. So there are those concerns kind of. It's not just if you want to breed some silkworms, you've got to feed them some stuff. What do they eat? Mulberry bushes. Do we have enough of these kinds of things? Are they the right kind of mulberries, etc.? So it's it's an odd one, but it's it, it's thinking in a sense about manufacturing. But what you need to do to get to the manufacturing stage involves knowing an awful lot about um, plants and about these these worms and how to keep them alive and how to keep them active, um, um, and how to do that at home. In fact. Um, 
So a central example here is a postmistress in Kent in England, um, an apothecary in Pennsylvania, um, man, and uh, and then I've got a sort of range of other kind of working and leisured women working across um, Britain and Ireland, um, all of whom conduct their experiments from home. So yeah, it's kind of at the juncture of naturalism and commercial interest, and some of these. Um, people leaned more heavily on the kind of discourses of um, natural history and other ones much more on discourses of kind of commercial interests and manufacturing. Um, So also societies give out prizes, right, for these these, uh, um, issues. I don't think any of the Irish women got a prize that was worth any money, sadly. It was kept and considered and rejected in one case. But a couple of women in England in the English context did and they got some quite you know they were really recognized for their contribution to this so basically it offers the chapter through this silkworm breeding example offers a detailed insight into how experimental work kind of occupied domestic space firesides and pigeonholes of cabinets come up you know garret windowsill is discussed even a hat box you know was pressed to the service of silkworm cultivation um, you know, the people who are doing this, you know, well, the women especially, you know, took responsibility for the labour of home, whether that was by their own hand or by ordering perhaps a servant to do various tasks. But they were also well positioned to experiment. Um, um, it often required sort of small bursts of time throughout the day. And this was how, and they managed it alongside other kinds of work in some cases. Um, in some of the Irish examples, uh, women were keen to bring on board apprentices, making the argument that they could, um, you know, learn all about silkworm breeding, which would be very profitable ultimately, but they could also um, get used to doing domestic work at the same time, which would be very helpful. Uh, one woman had to move house because her, her house was so full of silkworms. Um, you, know, it was, it, they, you know, they'd outgrown her domestic space, in fact. So, um, so it's it's an it's so basically it's an interesting example of experimentation at home. You get lots of detailed um, testimony about what is being observed and how they're testing out different um, methods of keeping these um, worms alive to begin with, and then spinning second secondarily. Um, and what's interesting about them is they just really explicit about how it works at home whereas my experience of reading lots of letters into the society for the encouragement of arts manufacturers and commerce is that many people um men especially tend to obscure home as the site of what they're doing even though it seems that home the home must be where they are doing their experiments or testing out their new innovation my sense is that if there is an alternative sort of more professionalized space, it's mentioned because it lends a certain authority. But what you find is the, the kind of the context of home is often obscured. And I think that's deliberate. And so these the two key silkworm women working in an English context are just tell you a lot about how it fits into their home environment. And possibly it was because it was a venture that was kind of understood to be a cottage industry, maybe they felt that was legitimate. Either way, they explain it in a way that is actually quite hard to root out of other testimonies about domestic experimentation. Um, and yeah, 
Um, so it's, they so they they chose themselves as a key um, example for this book. It works really well. This is where I could kind of see it all coming together. These women like checking on their silkworms and writing it down and letting everyone else know how it was going. Uh, but really, I got I got this image of domestic industry and experimentation. That's great. All right. I have taken loads of your time already. So I've got the one more question and then I'll let you go. But this is, um, aside from your tiny human, what are you working on right now? What am I working on? Well, it's, you know, it's a funny, um, it's a funny juncture really. So I'm working on lots of different things at the moment. Um, I'm trying to use some of, some of the ideas I ended up with in this book, um, thing, you know, questions of kind of disrupting sort of hierarchies, dualist formations and kind of um, kind of exclusions within histories of knowledge and trying to sort of drill further into that. I'm trying to work with other people. <laughs> she says like a school child. <laughs> I just really need to work with other people. Books are a slightly lonely project quite often. Um, it's often the way historians work. Um, but I feel like now um, we've got this one completed and published um I'd like to take threads on but to do it in conversation with others so yeah so a number of different um project collective projects shall we say on the horizon and I have a small idea that may become a bigger idea at some point about thinking about 18th century air but it's so um under research at this stage I cannot tell you very much about it (laughs) It's in, I'm my interest is peaked. I want to know, but yeah, it is lonely writing a book. Mm. It, it, <laughs> it is. And I don't think that's. I mean, I I imagine when everyone thinks of a writer, they they probably see what they're getting it. You know, it's just you and <laughs> typing away. But it's so long, <laughs> and it's yeah, and it actually write every word. They don't like it's, <laughs> and we write a few of them. <laughs> Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, well, good luck with uh, with all of that. That sounds really interesting, and I'm see what happens for you know with this air project. That sounds yeah. really cool. <laughs> yeah. So I'll sit with that for a while before committing to another book. <laughs> Big monograph. Yeah. All right, Lainey. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Anna. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Bye bye. <laughs>